Well, if you will, take your Bible and turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> we are going to continue in our series. We began last Sunday, and next Sunday we will conclude it, Lord willing, but a simple series called Divided. And uh, hopefully we are not dividing ourselves as we talk about that which divides us. <laughs> I don't believe we are. But I want you to hear a quote this morning as we get started. What a great, wonderful worship, great singing this morning. Great impromptu on the kids. <laughs> Thought about joking about having some of you come up here and help me preach this morning, but uh, it might have been a little uncomfortable. Great spirits, those kids. Steve, you want to come on? <laughs> might help me. Listen to this quote. William, Penn said, William James said this. My first act of freedom will be to believe in freedom. This morning we're going to talk about freedom in this new message out of this series that we're working, working through right now called Divided. And so we're just going to talk about freedom. I, I want to read the first part of the Declaration of Independence. This, you know, this is where we largely understand freedom in our nation. Listen to this. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with, with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall be most likely to effect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an, of an absolute tyranny over these states to prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Those are powerful words written many, many years ago. They're beautiful words. They're strong words. They're words that fully characterize the sentiment of the Second Continental Congress there in 1776 and those 56 men who signed this document. 
The decision to declare their independence from Britain and to face the subsequent war that would come against them was not something they took lightly. It was done with great prudence. The colonists, as this declaration indicates, had endured patient sufferance under the tyranny of the king of England. But the time for them had come to throw off his control and establish a new government, a government that would work for them and would work with them, a government that would guard their God-given freedoms. Citizens of the United States of America, we believe in freedom, right? We believe in freedom. We believe in the right to freely express and enjoy civil liberties. Why do we hold these beliefs? Is it because we have the Declaration of Independence? Is it because we have uh, a document like the Constitution which sets up our government and constrains our government? There are many people around the world who do not believe as we do. They do not hold the same perspectives on freedom. In fact, even in our own country, there are many today who do not believe in the freedom that we most likely believe in. One of the reasons we hold these beliefs is because they are expressed here in the Declaration of Independence that we've just heard from. It set the course for our nation. It set the course for our form of government. It set the course for what our country would become through the establishment of the Constitution. But I would say this, this morning that our convictions run deeper than the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Our convictions run deeper in the fact that our freedoms that we believe in, our freedoms that we enjoy, our freedoms that our convictions that we hold come from God. They are first seated in the God of creation. You see, even the founding fathers believed this. They said that we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, that of the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Today, as we examine this second area of division in our country, we're looking at freedom. Freedom is under attack today. Freedom has always been under attack. And we're going to get to that in a moment. And I believe you're going to see where the tyranny comes from and who's behind the enslavement. Truth is, freedom is under attack in this nation. It's under attack in the great commonwealth of Virginia. I think it's evident to all of us. I, I believe that if our framers, the founders of our nation, were to stand here and see the things that we are enduring and putting up with, they would roll over in their graves. They would be astonished that we would stand for the despotism and the long history of the injuries coming from government the same sort of things that they broke away from England over. Those men and women worked to form a more perfect union in order, among other things, to secure the blessings of liberty. And yet today, freedom is a divisive subject. How is that possible? How is it possible to, that we could be divided over the idea of freedom? It's really, for me, hard to believe that this could and would be a reality, but the truth is, it's a divisive subject. We're a deeply divided nation. We're a deeply divided people. We're divided over many, many things. I said last week, I, I said some, summer before last, that we are divided over COVID. And, and just looking at that from the standpoint of freedom, we're divided over the issue of mandates that come along with COVID these days. We're divided politically. 
Racially, ethnically, we're divided spiritually. I mean, uh, we've been saying it. We're in a fight for our, the soul of our country. We're trying to figure out who we will become as we move forward as a people. What will America look like and be like in the days and decades ahead? So as Christians, as those who've been transformed by the blood of Christ, those who've been transformed by the life of Christ and the Holy Spirit living within us, we want to see unity. I can't imagine a Christian who's walking with the Lord, wanting to walk in division with other people. And so we want to be unified. We want to come together with other people. We want to come together as a culture. The temptation is is that we would seek that unity, that peace, and that harmony at any price, and yet we can never go there. Like I said last Sunday, the temptation is for us to bend on our convictions, just to change our morals. Philosophical and ideological transformation is what is demanded of us, and yet there are some ideologies, let's just put it this way, there are some theologies we cannot and must not bend on. We have to go with the Bible. We are a Bible people. So we don't bow to the wishes of those who would look at things progressively. We would look at the things conservatively. Hey, let me just tell you this this morning. Conservatism is not a bad thing. Conservatism is something we should cherish. And, and I that has overtones into the political realm, but I'm not talking specifically about the political realms. Our politics as Christians ought to flow out of our conservative viewpoints of Scripture and the gospel. That's what we're looking at. How how do I vote? How do I look at culture? How do I uh, play my role in this democratic uh, governmental structure that we're a part of? How do I play my, my part, my spot as a follower of Jesus Christ, as one who would believe the Bible. That's what we're looking at in all of this. My goal is not to say, hey, vote for this candidate. I guess from an IRS standpoint, I don't have that platform. At least it would put us on some rocky ground, though I would, be, I would welcome that. I'm not fearful of that. But that's not my goal. I want us to think biblically and theologically about these issues. Must be a Bible people. We must be those who would not compromise because there are some things we cannot and must not ever compromise on as a follower, as a disciple of Christ. Instead, we are going to believe the Bible. We're going to continue to preach the Bible. We're going to continue to hold it up as the standard for how we live and how we relate to one another. So in this election season that we're in right now, We want to look at things biblically and theologically and look at how our theology ought to drive our political engagement. I think that's a good way to put it. Why is this so important? I believe it's important because we play that part, right? We all have one vote. If you are of 18 years of age or older and you're a citizen of this commonwealth and a citizen of this country, you have a role to play. I believe you have a biblical responsibility to play your part in God's ordained government system that he's established here in this great land. Romans 13 will tell us that, right? And so if I'm going to play my part, I need to approach it in the way that would bring the most glory 
to God's great name. So that's what we're looking at as we talk about this. And so in just a matter of weeks, some of you have already voted, but in just a matter of weeks, we will cast our votes for very important, influential seats in this state's government, the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the attorney general. And then there's others in the House of Delegates, perhaps probably even uh, the Senate of our state in different areas of the Commonwealth. These are important, important decisions that we will make. And so we need to make sure we're looking at them biblically and through the lens of the gospel. So we're looking at these three areas, adoption, freedom, and cancel culture, Lord willing, next Sunday. And I told you last week, this is what we're doing. As you look at those three characteristics, or those three um, subjects, those three issues, the things that we're going to look at them through is the idea of the sanctity of human life. We've been made by God. We've been made God. We're creating his image and his likeness. There's something of the divine within us. So we are as human beings, valuable, every single one of us from the one who's just been concepted in the womb to the one who is about to meet the Lord Jesus at the end of his or her life, all intrinsically valuable because of their creation. And then the second part of that, God would tell us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so if I'm going to love my neighbor as, my, as myself, I'm going to look out for my neighbor. I'm going to do what's good and what's best for that person. So those two overarching principles are what's guiding this discussion largely as we look at abortion, freedom, and next week, cancel culture. So like abortion, when we talk about freedom, we are talking about the value of human life. See, the founding fathers of our nation valued human life, and that's the reason they sought to protect it. That's the reason they were willing to do what was necessary to throw off government that suppressed and harmed life in order to create government that protected and guarded life. So they wrote freedoms into the document upon which our government was established. In that document, later, a few years later, we came up with what's called the Bill of Rights. The first 10 amendments to our Constitution are called the Bill of Rights. Let me give you just some history on that. James Madison, who was a Virginian, wrote those amendments. In those amendments, they list out specific prohibitions on governmental power in response. All of this was in response to states calling for more restrictions against the government's Power. They wanted to preserve the rights of individual states, which preserved the rights of individual citizens. And so they called for greater constitutional protection of individual liberties. The Bill of Rights was strongly influenced by the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which was written by George Mason. It's interesting, though, as they threw these, these amendments out, I believe it started with 17, finally got down to 10 that were ratified, but the last state to ratify those 10 amendments was our state. The one that they were based off of was the last state to amend it. I don't know the reason for that. Maybe you history buffs could tell me that, but I found that very interesting as I looked at that this week. We need to be those who would stand for freedom like our founding fathers. Now, historically, we know that the freedoms we enjoy, the freedoms we cherish as Americans, are derived from and protected by the Constitution. Now, we also understand where the framers gained their inspiration for such a document and such a system of government. Where did it come from? It came from a biblical worldview. It came from a worldview that encompassed what the Bible teaches. 
See, they understood God to be the author and the giver of life. You saw that in the Declaration of Independence. They understood he is the one who gives life. They understood that God is the creator who gives in that life that he gives certain unalienable rights. Not rights that come to us from the government. Things that are there intrinsically long before the government is established. Today, I want us to examine this issue of freedom from this perspective of biblical theological grid. And as we do so, I, I want us to discover that God created humanity to enjoy freedom. We are a free people because God has created us to enjoy it. So let's look at this. First thing I want you to see here is this. Freedom is found in God and following God's word. As we seek to understand what freedom is, first of all, it is found in God and it's found in following God's word. Here's what we know about people. Here's what we know about sinful people. We have the tendency, our natural default position is that we want to be autonomous. We don't want anyone else telling us what to do or how to do it. So we view ourselves as autonomous being without any need to be connected to any other human being or to a creator. So in this view of autonomy, people understand themselves to be free to do, to say, and to believe anything and everything they please. Now, this perspective of freedom is not the perspective of the Bible's understanding of freedom. Now, before we begin to describe what freedom looks like in the Bible, I think it's important that we first make clear that God believes in freedom. I think many times we go to try to share the gospel with someone, we begin to talk about our faith with someone, and that individual will immediately hit you with, well, you just don't believe in doing this, and they'll list all of these don'ts, right? We as Christians sometimes are guilty of our don'ts. I want you to know that there are lots of things that God says do. And he says, do enjoy freedom. Do participate in freedom. It is for you. We're going to get to the don'ts in just a moment. But God gives freedom. God has called us, created us to enjoy freedom. He sets people free. So how one defines freedom then becomes the big question. Biblically, when we think about freedom, it does not mean free for all. It does not mean you can do whatever's right in your own eyes. And in fact, if you think that's your perspective and you think God would put his stamp of approval on that, let me take you to the book of Judges, which says over and over and over again, they did what was right in their own eyes. And you will see the destruction that comes from them doing what was right in their own eyes. Freedom is not you doing what you want to do. Freedom is you doing and living and operating within the parameters God has created. Let me say it a different way. Our freedom is found exclusively in the space and the path God has ordained. That's a James Taylor original. That's the only one I've ever had. Our freedom is found exclusively in the space and the path God has ordained. Let's look at this in Genesis chapter 2. You know this. Um, passage. You know what's going on here, I'm sure. Creation account. God has given us the big 30,000 foot view in chapter one. Now he's coming down on chap in day six in chapter two, and he's given us the very up close and personal account. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. 
So in these verses, what we're learning here is that God is the one who placed Adam in Eden, right? It was God who gave Adam a job to do. He says, here, you're in Eden. This is for you. I want you to work it. I want you to keep it. This is your job. This is your responsibility. It was God here who directed Adam as to how he should do his job. I want you to do it well. I want you to keep this. I want you to tend this. I want you to make things grow and prosper. We also learn here that God gave Adam the freedom to enjoy all that Eden had to offer. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree. Wow, that's an amazing thing. And so with that understanding, let me just give you two points about freedom that we dare not miss as we look at this account. First of all, you are blessed to enjoy it. God created you to enjoy freedom. So he says right here, you may surely eat of every tree. Now, when, like I said earlier, when people accuse us of only being about what we can't do, that's not what God's may, uh, 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 prioritizing. That's what he's not that's not what he's majoring on as he describes this. He says, you are blessed. You can eat from every tree. Let's put yourself in this scene here. What is God doing? I envision God taking Adam by the hand, and he's just walking him through the garden. Man, look at this. There's a, that's an awesome tree right there. That's a peach tree. Right there is persimmons, and those things won't even make you pucker if you eat them green. You ever ate a persimmon? They're ripe this time of year, but you don't want to ever touch that thing if it's not ripe and squishy. It, you'll pucker up for the next three hours. But he's walking around the garden. He's saying, you, this is all for you. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Look at the ears of corn on that stalk. You can eat for days on that thing. And as soon as you pick it, there's an ear that comes right behind it. Look at this. It's all for you. Beautiful picture that God is giving Adam. Beautiful picture he's giving to us to tell us and to remind us that God is a God of freedom. So as he walks him through the garden, he's pointing out how beautiful it is, how lush it is, how prosperous it is, how pleasing it is. It will satisfy you. It's exactly what you want. It's exactly what you need. It's all for you to enjoy, Adam. That's what God is saying to the first man. He's free to indulge himself in it. You see, God made sure that Adam understood that he was blessed to enjoy this freedom. But there's a second point that we need to make sure that we catch. You are warned of the parameters. See, in this freedom that God has created for us, he has set up parameters. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There are parameters to our freedom. We said that's, when I, that's not freedom at all. Freedom is I can do anything and everything I want. That's not the case. I'm going to get ahead of myself here. But when you make that argument, what you're saying is, I am my own God. We have to remember, I am a creation of God. Therefore, the pot never tells the potter how to orchestrate or define or beautify him. No, it's the other way around. The potter sets the parameters for how the pot's going to be made and how the pot is going to be utilized. Yet this perceived lack of freedom is where many people balk. And that brings us to the idea of tender, tyranny. So secondly, as we seek to understand freedom biblically and theologically, first of all, we know it's something God's created. But secondly, we see that tyranny is the work of sin and Satan. Humans naturally want to be autonomous. I said that earlier. 
We want to be our own gods. We want to be God ourselves. And for this reason, the idea of freedom, being confined to God, being confined to his world, that's simply unacceptable. That, that should not even be on the table. So how did we get this mentality? Because right here in Genesis 2, 15, 16, and 17, that's not Adam's mentality. He's walking around with the Lord holding his hand and thinking, good night, I am blessed. Look at the freedom I have. Look at all of this. It is mine to enjoy, not for my own indulgence, but for the glory of God. How did we get this mentality? Look over in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the, fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Then, or, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves. How did we get to this place? We read right here in these verses that Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve. How did he do that? He came up and began to question, did God really say? You say, what's the big deal with this question? Well, it caught their attention. They began to debate, or Eve began to debate with him, began to answer the question, maybe even began to argue on behalf of God. And she says, yeah, God did say that. He said, we can't even touch that tree. We don't have time to go there just yet. But she begins to enter entertain this conversation. She begins to debate with the enemy, but his lies and his temptations begin to seep in, and she begins to listen to his offer of an opportunity to throw off God's sovereignty over their lives and to become God's themselves. See, he offered a perceived freedom unrestricted by God's rules. God had already set the parameters for their freedom. They could eat. They could enjoy all that the garden has to offer except from that one tree. And if they ate from that forbidden tree, they would be stepping outside of the parameter God had said. And what is that? It's sin. The Bible would speak of it as being transgression. It's a crossing. It's a passing over a barrier. That's what sin is. That's what transgression is. So sin is anything outside the parameters of God's word. One point needs to be made clear about sin and its tyranny, and it's this. Sin promises freedom, but delivers only bondage. Anybody experience that? We've all experienced that. We've all experienced exactly what Adam and Eve here experienced as they listened to the deception, they listened to the lies, and they believed them and sought to be their own God, thinking they could be freer than under God's rule. So today, many people demand the freedom to choose only to be bound by the choices that go outside of God's parameters. Adam and Eve weighed this decision. They thought it would bring greater freedom and blessing, and yet they quickly learned it brought only bondage. Where's the bondage in this passage? Verse 7. They immediately recognized their nakedness. You say, what's the big deal about naked? You're born naked. 
right? What's the big deal? There's nothing wrong with the nakedness. It speaks of shame. They understood their shame. They understood there's been a separation. How do you know there's a separation? Verse 8, God comes walking in the garden like he did in chapter 2. And what are they doing? They're not running up to take his hand. They're not running up to, to, to learn from him and, and discover what new thing God wants to give them or show them. They're not running to experience fellowship with God. The Bible tells us they hid themselves. They covered themselves with fig leaves or made loincloths for themselves. They're trying to cover their shame and they're hiding from God. Sin does not bring freedom. Sin brings bondage. Someone might argue, well, no, they were free. They no longer were under the, 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 the sovereign dictatorship of Almighty God. No, they were not free. They were made by God and for God. Freedom's only found in him and under his word, the parameters there. You get outside of that. You're not free and autonomous. You're a slave to sin and Satan. Thus the gospel. Thus the need for the gospel. So last Sunday we said we must believe the Bible. We must preach the Bible. We must hold it up as a standard for how we live and relate to one another. We must not bow down to the winds of culture, but instead we stand up strong. We lead our culture to change by surrendering to God's plan, calling them to that. It alone is what brings freedom. So what does that look like? How, how are we going to think biblically on this issue of freedom? Let me give you a few responses as a Christian, the Christian response to freedom. Number one. Vote and work to preserve the right of freedom. We must vote and work to preserve the right of freedom. Now, it seems very clear to me, at least, that freedom is under attack in America. I, I said it earlier. I think most of you probably agreed with me. Perhaps you don't agree with me. That's okay. You're okay to be wrong. That's your free choice to be <laughs> wrong. The Constitution guarantees that. But I firmly believe that we've lost sight of the freedoms our founding fathers worked to secure for us. Our approach to freedom, vastly different than theirs. See, the man who signed their names to the Declaration of Independence, think about this, immediately upon signing that document and sending it over the Atlantic to the king, put them in grave danger. They basically said, we are now enemies of the state. Our estates our futures, any blessing for our kids is in jeopardy because we have signed our names to this and now we have become enemy numero uno in front of the king. Why did they do that? Because they believe that freedom was worth fighting for. They believe that freedom was worth contending for, worth putting their lives down on the line. And as Christians, we must vote. We must work to preserve the right of freedom. Now, I'm not calling us to arms like they did in the revolution. We're not in that situation. We're not in that stage. But we have an opportunity every single year through our governmental system to operate, to use our responsible position to work to preserve the right of freedom. We do this not for comfort. We do this not to enjoy the blessings of our country, but we do it because we want to be free. 
We do it so that America continued to be a, for, a force of good in this world. We do this so that we as Americans can continue to be a gospel launching pad. Think about what, just, what has happened in the last 200 and almost 50 years as a nation. We've been greatly used by God for the sake of the gospel. Nations have, have been introduced to the message of Christ because the freedoms here enabled that. So when we vote to preserve that, we're voting for an opportunity to continue to be a mission-sending country. Number two, vote and work to promote biblical morals and ethics in the law. Again, it goes back to the law, like I said last week. And so if sin is anything outside the parameters of God's word, and if sin brings death and tyranny, which we see in Genesis chapter 3... If sin promises freedom but delivers only bondage, then as Christians, we love our neighbor as ourselves when we do everything we can to keep people free of sin, keep people free of the entanglements of sin. See, that's loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's valuing them because they're created and made in the image of God. So that means we're going to work and advocate for laws that are biblically moral and ethical in nature. Listen to these two quotes. I think they'll be on the screen for us. William Penn said this, Law without liberty is tyranny. Liberty without law is license. Liberty under the law is freedom. That's what we're advocating here. Liberty under the law. That's what God says in Genesis 2. Hey, eat all of it. Enjoy every bit of it, but don't touch or don't eat of that tree. You say, well, I want that tree. That tree will bind you. That tree will destroy you. That tree will bring devastation to your life like never before. You will not be your own God. You will not be autonomous. You will continue to be a subservient, but it will be to someone who is destructive in nature, who only wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. John Witherspoon said this, He is the best friend to American liberty who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion and who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind. We need to, as Christians, work to vote and move our culture, move our laws to a place where we are restraining sinful behavior. You say, that's not freedom. It's the best kind of freedom. It's under the parameters of God. You say, well, that's not libertarian. I'm not talking about libertarianism. I agree with a lot of what libertarians would would hold to, but I can't go in certain areas. For instance, legal drug use. I can't, as a Christian in good faith, go there and say, you're free under the Constitution to do whatever you want because you're an individual. You go and do it. That's what libertarians would say. I can't do that because I see the destructive side of what it's going to do to the individual, their kids, and everyone around them. What are we going to do? Open up alcohol to everybody from zero to death? No. We know it's extremely destructive. So we limit it. I would argue we probably need to do something there, but that's on my own conviction. Save your emails on that. We all have our personal convictions. I've just seen the destruction of it. No, we limit it for the good of people. We put it on a certain parameter to protect people because we love them, right? So we're not talking about libertarianism. Libertarianism is not biblical freedom. Freedom is not a free-for-all lifestyle. Freedom is living under the parameters of God and His Word. Thirdly, what do we need to do? Actively pray and share the gospel. 
You say, well, that's a cop-out type of sub-point. Why would you say that? That's just Christian living. Exactly. You'll never legislate sinful behavior. Now, Romans 13 tells us that when we, God has ordained government, and when we use government in a way that brings honor and glory to him, it exercises his will and his word, it constrains sin. But it only deals with the outward side, right? It only deals with the, the, the outward portion of a person. It never deals with the heart. And so if we want to bring freedom to people's lives, it's not by setting up all of these different laws. That needs to be done. But ultimately, we have to get to a person's heart. How do you do that? The gospel. So as an individual Christian, we need to share and we need to pray and we need to work with people through the gospel so that the Holy Spirit of God can take the word of God and bring transformation to that individual's lives. That's what we've been called to do. So while we work politically as a responsible American citizen and as a responsible Virginian citizen, we're actively as a Christian citizen sharing the gospel, putting most, if not all of our reliance there. What's the greatest need in our nation? Well, we need a certain person in the White House. I would agree. We probably need to have a, a good person in the White House from time to time. We need to, we, we need to have a, a different governor. I agree with that. That would help us a whole lot. What's the greatest need in America? Jesus. That's a good Sunday school answer. <laughs> we need a spiritual awakening like we haven't seen since the late 1700s. And that always happens when there's a great revival in the church. We have been lulled to sleep for decades. We wonder why there's such destruction and evil disparity in our schools. Where's the church been in the school? Well, we got kicked out. Why didn't we try to fight that battle a little bit more? I think we got to move back. We got to engage culture. We cannot isolate and insulate ourselves. We need to move out, but first we need God to move in us. We got to understand who we are in Christ and what He wants to do in us and, and then through us. And then we got to go and live that where we live and work and play. You need to be the light of the gospel in your neighborhood. You say, I don't have a neighborhood. You got a road you live on. Be a light there. You need to be the light in the office that you work in, the factory, whatever it is, the class that you're attending. You need to be the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ right there. If we will do that, perhaps God would do something in our country. And that's a whole lot more hopeful than wringing our hands thinking, oh, I hope we get the right person in the White House. I hope we get the right person in the governor's house. Man, I do that stuff too, and I want to throw my remote control at the TV sometimes at some of the things that are said. I'm just like you. And i got to remind myself that ultimately the battle's won on my knees before it's ever won in the ballot box. It could be that the things we're experiencing as a nation is just God's further judgment upon us from our sinfulness, all the more reason for us to pray and repent and seek his face. Second Chronicles 7.14 is still true. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So we're a divided people. All kinds of noise on all kinds of fronts. It's stressful. It's uncertain. 
brings the temptation for us to compromise our convictions and our biblical beliefs. And yet we understand that God alone is the God of freedom. And so we cannot, dare not, compromise on the gospel. It's liberty that he offers. It's only found in him. It's found in, uh, in living under those parameters that he has set. God is the giver of freedom. So what does that mean for us today? Well, there's not much we can do sitting right here at this moment. But we can in a couple of weeks as we vote. Or maybe you're planning to vote this week early. I know some people voted uh, already. Vote convictionally. Vote biblically. Vote theologically along those lines. Your vote shouldn't be dictated by the little alphabet letter that comes after the candidate's name. It shouldn't be dictated by how your pocketbook's going to be influ- inf- uh, influenced. Infected is a good word, too. Uh, that's, that's what I was going to say. Your, your vote shouldn't be influenced by um, social position and all of those things. Those are important. I get it. But ultimately, your vote ought to be influenced by what the Lord's Word says about the issue and where that candidate stands. Pray, see God's face. But what does it mean for us in this room right here? God calls us to freedom. Amen? I think we've seen that in the Scripture. God is a God of freedom. Some of you sitting in this room, some people listening to us online, you've never to this day, experience the freedom of God. You say, I I go to church all the time. Good for you. I'm glad you're here. Bless you. I'm super excited you're here. Being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. You've heard that adage. Today, you, you need the freedom of God. And it comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes through you understanding that God loves you. He made you for himself. He's created you to be in relationship with, you, with him. And yet sin has broken that. Sin has separated you from him. But today he's calling you to that. And the thing you need to do is what I did April 24th, 1997, is get down on my knees and say, Lord Jesus, I'm religious. I, I, I understand the gospel, but I am lost. Your word says that he who has the son has life, but he who does not have the son does not have life. I don't have life. I'm living, but I don't have life. I want that. You've forgiven me of my sins. Become the Lord and Savior of my life. And immediately, based upon the authority of the word of God, God forgave me. I'm not a mystical person. I'm as objective, I think, as as they come. And that day I felt free from sin. Have I sinned since then? Ask my family over here. Ask the guys that I went fishing with yesterday. I'm sure I did something crazy. <laughs> Doesn't mean you're sinless, but it means your sins are forgiven. It means you have life, eternal life. You need that today. We're going to have a time of response. I'm going to encourage you to come forward. I'd love to share the gospel. I'd love to get you with one of our other members to walk through the gospel a little bit more in detail and just walk you through that decision God is placing upon your heart even right now. But for Christians, some of you are walking into guilty existence. Yeah, you're a follower of Jesus. You're in relationship with him, but your life's not what it needs to be. And you know that. You know the sin that you're harboring. You know the sin that you're hanging on to. And today, I would just encourage you to just let it go. Bring it here, lay it down at the altar, so to speak, and just let the Lord take it, forgive it, and bring freedom to your life. Let's pray. God is speaking to you in such a way. Maybe you just want to come and pray about an issue that God's Later upon your heart. Let's have freedom to do that. He is a God of freedom. Father, this morning.